I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on LinkedIn.com slash people today. Okay. Okay, we're on topic. Completely ignore me. Yeah. So just your full name first for the tape. Patrick Bourne. And your brother was? Francis Bourne. Francis Bourne. So you're in record, Jim? From the news team at Virgin Media Ireland, this is Room 631, Ireland's COVID crisis. I'm reporter Zara King. This six-part podcast series contains the unheard tapes from the Virgin Media News documentary team. These episodes come from hours of footage taken during the making of our documentary, Ireland Under Lockdown. Throughout the series, we'll hear the thoughts of key decision makers who sat inside the walls of room 631 at the Department of Health and the voices of the people whose lives were changed by those decisions as a global crisis unfolded in their homes. I just, I just wanted to see him. Okay, okay. So, Podrick, I suppose to start at the very beginning, we first became familiar with you when we saw the photograph, now famous photograph, of you peering in the window of St. Luke's Hospital. Um, can you take us back to that moment? How did you end up there, standing on that bench, and, and what was happening? Yeah. Well, Francis was... Um, was very sick at the time and we knew there wasn't much time left so um, the family were sent for that's Francis' wife Betty and the daughter was sent for and in the meantime when this was all going on <coughs> my wife rang me to tell me that um, Francis has just passed away and I said did Betty and Rachel make it there and they said yeah they're in the room with Francis and I said thank God for that because we knew it, w- it could be any time and because of the COVID, people couldn't be in the room for hours or anything like that. So my wife was working in Luke's hospital at the time and I was the collector that evening. And I said, uh, I'll go down to the hospital. And when I got to the hospital, Luke's hospital there in Rakar, Felicity said, they're in the room with Francis. And I said, um, is, is there any way I can get in or anything like that? I knew myself that I couldn't. And I just thought, I just looked and I seen the bench. I knew which room Francis was in. We were, I was outside on the lawn and I said, uh, I, think, I think I'm going to lift that bench because I just, I just wanted to see him. I hadn't seen my brother because of the COVID restrictions. I hadn't seen him in over three weeks. None of the family had seen him and yet we were with him day and night all the time. So I got the bench and I, I was able to lift it. It was light enough and I put it up against the window and we rang Betty to lift the curtains up. I said, pull the curtains up, I, I want to have a look. So it was a lovely spring evening, April evening, and the sun was shining. So I had to put my hands up against the window frame to look in, and I could see Francis. And I was just, even though it was so sad, I was happy myself that I could see him. And I felt terrible sorry for Betty and Rachel just in the room on their own. I would have loved him just be in there. 
So that, in a way, that bench gave me the chance to see my brother. How did you feel when you saw him? It was it was very hard to really pray into words because he, he, like I was looking through a glass, I couldn't touch him, I couldn't hug him, and yeah, his wife and Rachel, his wife and daughter were in there, they couldn't do the same, and it's just just to want to hold your brother and say a last goodbye to him. It, it, it was terrible not having that connection. And it's that bond between brothers is particularly strong, isn't it? It is yet because when my first bro brother died, Cormac, like we carried him into the church. And I always remember one of my brothers tipped me on the shoulder, Brendan, and he said, this is the last time six of us will carry one of us in. And little did I know that we were never going to carry Francis in. And that, that, was, that was sad. Like it's a brotherly thing to do, and that wasn't to be. It was taken away from you? It was taken away from us. The COVID took that away from us, yeah. Took that away. It took that bond, that connection. We were, we were robbed of that. We were robbed of the grief for Francis. That connection and everything like that. And you'll never get that back. It's not going to come back. It was hard to kind of understand this. Why am I here? Why am I not in the room? You know, why is all this happening? It was like a darkness coming over us all. But yeah, at the end of the day, the sun shone through the window and there was a light in there. And I was, you know, I was happy for that, that the room wasn't dark. And that was the last time you saw him? Pardon? Was that the last time you saw him? That was the last time I saw Francis. And that was, uh, he had passed away at that stage. That's the last time I saw him. So <clears throat> the next stage is then in terms of organising a funeral and trying to give him a send-off and say your goodbyes was obviously very challenging under the circumstances as well. Tell us about that. Well, th there was no funeral. And uh, that's what we all knew when this was, going, when this was happening, that we, we all knew there was, going, there was going to be no funeral. Because the restrictions were. I mean, when, when Francis passed away, like, he... The sheets Francis was in were just folded over. And he, Francis would be placed in, in, into a, a body bag. That's the reality of it. Because the, the less interfering with the patients or touching clothes or bed linen or anything like that, that's... No, no. Like, there was no clothes sent in for Francis. Francis wasn't laid out in, in his clothes. So, and you had said that, like, so basically it was a case of, like, everything was wrapped up and put into a closed casket and that was it. It was a very... That, that was it. That was it. Francis would be collected probably maybe that evening to go to the Undertakers or the next morning to go to the graveyard. How do you feel about that? It's, it's again, it, it's, it's very sad. It's, it's hard to comprehend and yeah, it was happening and we, we had no power over. We couldn't do nothing about this at all. And even since all of this has happened and you reflect over it now a couple of months later, do you still feel the same? Or are you angry now? Are you frustrated by it? No, I'm, I wouldn't say I'm angry because there's so many people have gone through this. I mean, I mean if everyone was to be angry, we'd be, I think we'd be in a worse place. In a worse place. But just going back to um, the funeral, like... When, we, when Francis left the, 
there and undertakers he was brought he was brought home to where he lived and he was outside his house we say for about 10 minutes and all the neighbors came out and applauded it was lovely they showed francis great respect it was great and then um, when we got to the graveyard we were all going over cars and you you must remember this time there was only 10 people there's five brothers Francis wife and daughter and three other people only 10 people and when we followed the cortege up to where Francis grave was we were stopped and then the cortege moved on ahead and Francis was taken out and lowered into the grave we weren't even at the gravesite when that was happening we weren't at the gravesite when that happened and then when Francis was lowered in then we were called forward it was just a short distance away but still that connection wasn't there was taken from us. We couldn't be at the, the grave when Francis was being lowered down or anything like that. And the priest said a few prayers and that, that was the end of it. We couldn't hug Betty or Rachel. Like it was, it was just very strange. Like no, no, nobody, like sometimes you'd see a, a graveyard at the grave, people would be hugging each other, embracing each other, crying you'd hear the scream sometimes. Like there was nothing like that. Those are complete silence. Uh, so Rachel Byrne. Rachel Byrne. And you're Francis' daughter. Yeah. Yes. I mean, you never know when someone is obviously going to die or, you know, the hour and that. So like we'd been ringing them up and asking, you know, how he was, had he gotten, had he like deteriorated. So uh, they did, he was bad that particular day. And uh, so we went up that evening or that kind of afternoon. Um, obviously we were allowed in, we had to put on all the, all the PPE. So the big blue gown, the gloves, the mask, I think the goggles. And we kind of only had just about kind of got it all on. And the nurse was kind of like, you know, you can come in and kind of rushed us in. And like, it all kind of happened really quickly in the moment. And he was kind of, gone within about maybe a minute or so like it just kind of happened very quickly um, it and it's all a bit of a blur obviously because we were kind of just kind of thrown in in one sense and then it was kind of like what's happening um, my dad didn't look great um, obviously it's it's not a pleasant experience to kind of see that kind of situation I hadn't really experienced much in terms of people dying so it, it it's not necessarily a pleasant memory just that particular one but uh yeah then it, it kind of was all over we didn't really know what the protocols were because like with everything with COVID everything was so different um so and do you think he knew that you were there in that last minute do you think he knew that you were with him he he did open his eyes and and kind of looked at um myself and my mom whether he knew kind of who we were as such, because obviously we had all the PPE on. Um, I, I can't say, but um, I think he knew that at least someone was there. And I hope that he knew that it was us, like, and, like who else kind of would it be? And I suppose how, how important was it for you to be there in that moment? I know a lot of families didn't get the chance to have yeah. that. Yeah. No, it was really important. I think particularly more for him. As I said, it obviously wasn't the most pleasant experience of my life. Obviously, it, it wouldn't be. But I think for the person that is dying, I think it is really important 
at least from my perspective, that they're not on their own. And as you said, obviously not everybody gets that experience or could with COVID, with the restriction. And we just happen to be kind of lucky in terms of, as I said, you don't know when someone's kind of going to die. So we were just lucky that we were there at that time. It was more like a fluke as opposed to, obviously it's not planned. And tell us about your dad. What was he like? Give us an insight into the person he was. So I'm an only child. So, I mean, he was a, he was a great father all growing up. He was always there for me. He was really, really reliable. Um, if, you know, he, like when I was a kid, you know, and you want to be dropped here, there and everywhere to friends' houses, um, he'd always be there and he was always on time. I knew if I said, Dad, I need to be somewhere at six o'clock, he was always ready and always early. Um, he'd always give out to me if I was late, um, but very incredibly punctual. Um, he was in Roadstone uh, in Belgrade for 44 years, so very hardworking man. He worked all the hours um, that God gave him just, you know, like uh, Monday to Friday and Saturdays as well, just worked to kind of give me the life that he wanted to give me to put me through education. Um, yeah, so like he was, I couldn't have asked for a better dad uh, or a better mom. <laughs> and you're doing a PhD in science now. Yeah, yeah. So, so proud of you. So yeah, yeah, of course. And obviously I did my undergrad in, in biochemistry and he was at my graduation for that. So that's obviously a great memory. Um, my, my dad never went to college. He never did his leaving, sir. Um, so I think, you know, he really pushed kind of education. I was always kind of someone who liked kind of studying and that sort of thing. So I think he was super proud of me. And then I did a master's in Edinburgh and he came over for that graduation, him and my mom. So that was another kind of really proud experience. So hopefully I'll graduate uh, or I'll finish my PhD hopefully next year. And then the graduation might be a year later. So in one sense, I'm looking forward to that, but obviously I have the photos of my other two graduations and, and he obviously won't be there. So that's, that's kind of, you know, yeah, upsetting, but it is what it is. So. Even though there was an age gap between myself and Francis of about seven years, like as you got older, you know, like he became a big brother and you kind of looked up to him. And my memories of Francis growing up was always music and the garden. Francis would be in the garden all day. I think that's where I got my green fingers was from Francis because you'd be copying what he was doing and he was a fanatic for Elvis Presley he was mad into Elvis Presley he eventually when he got married he took his wife and his daughter over to Graceland he was an Elvis fanatic he was a great father all growing up he was always there for me he was really really reliable very hard-working man he worked all the hours that God gave him to give me the life that he wanted to give me. I couldn't have asked for a better dad. And um, your uncle spoke about that idea that COVID took an awful lot away from you guys mm. in terms of how you were able to celebrate his life, say goodbye, all of those things. Yeah, I think it's more just, I missed the kind of, like dad would have known an awful lot of people who's very involved in our estate, in the residence association, doing all the flowers in the tidy towns. As I said, he worked in Roadstone for 44 years. So there was an awful lot of people who he would have known and who I wouldn't have known, but I would have liked to have met and kind of talked to them about my dad. You know, at, at a funeral, people always come up and they'd be like, oh, I remember when this happened and you might get a funny story. And so I, I missed kind of not being able to kind of have that and kind of that kind of experience of just, 
the kind of celebration of life of the person. Um, like we did get condolences on RIP.ie. We got some really nice messages from lots of different people, um, friends, family members, um, my old school principal, and some of them are really nice and some old, like some really nice stories, but it just wasn't the same. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Gus Nichols, director of Fannigan's Funeral Directors in Dublin. The pictures we saw from Italy around about the middle of March or slightly before the middle, and that shocked us, I think it shocked every, a lot of people. Uh, and then we realised, well, when we saw the pictures of the Italian army effected, effectively bringing the coffins to the cemeteries and joining a queue, we got worried. And we said we have to stop that happening here, or not let that happen here. So we got a we got a kickstart, we got a warning, and so we implemented um, obviously emergency meetings amongst ourselves and tried to buy and locate as much PPE as we possibly could. Uh, we instigated a training program for all the staff in terms of how they now are to deal with first call inquiries and let alone people coming down and knocking on the door uh, and also from the practical point of view our outdoor staff who would be going to nursing homes and hospitals where people were dying with COVID. So that was intense, <laughs> it was quite intense. Uh, we had some very early morning training sessions I remember at the weekend in, in March um, so we could keep the doors open because obviously um, that's what happened in Italy. The funeral, comp- the funeral directors, the people who run funeral service in Italy were sick and they couldn't provide the service. And that's why you saw the army. So um, whoever put that news report together probably helped a lot of people. Yeah. And when you think back to that time when you were watching those pictures, what, what were your thoughts and your feelings seeing those images coming from Italy? I'll be honest with you, it was stone cold fear and some sleepless nights. Uh, we had no living memory of dealing with a pandemic, 102 years. You go back to our old records, we're around a long time. It's very hard to discern how they p- dealt with it practically, that huge increase in mortality. Um, interestingly, there had been some planning done in 2004-05 by the emergency, flu, uh, emergency planning department of the HSC based on avian flu and SARS. So the state did have um, a dossier and sensibly uh, the association, the Irish Association of Funeral Directors here from almost the beginning were reporting in uh, or to, to Neffet as well. So it worked. That work done in the mid-noughties actually uh, 
paid off in terms of uh, keeping keeping what we do going. And prior to Italy, going back a bit further, maybe into January when we were seeing the images coming from Wuhan, was that worrying to you at the time or were you still feeling like it was quite far away? Yeah, oh, absolutely. And you'd heard of outbreaks before and SARS and it never, it never darkened the doors here really. So I think, uh, no, that, uh, January, no, it didn't, it didn't figure in our thinking at all. I think at first, the f probably, probably early March was the first time we said, what about this, what about this thing? You mentioned there an emergency training, emergency, emergency meeting is called first. Just tell us about that meeting, the feeling, the atmosphere, um, what it was like. Well, the, 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 there was an invitation went out to the Dublin firms to, to meet uh, and just discuss how we might manage it. And that was a good meeting. And it set down a few, I think, sensible um, uh, plans about how we would do it. And then obviously each individual company had to adapt and... Um, work out how they were going to do it and in our case uh, it was a training session particularly for our staff that would be going to the nursing homes uh, how to wear PPE properly how to take it off uh, how to interact with the staff when we get there because normally um, if, if, if you're removing someone from a hospital mortuary and you know what you're doing it takes about 10 to 15 minutes if you know what you're doing but in this case with uh, the whole PPE side of it, it could take over an hour, hour and a half to do it properly and safely. Uh, so that required training, it required training for me and everybody because none of us had done it. There was definitely a, a, an air of what's coming. Is this, is this our world war in a sense? It was ominous. It was ominous. You didn't know what to expect? No. And I remember, to go back to the kind of early stages, I remember sitting in uh, the government press centre in government buildings and Liz Canavan um, from the Department of the Taoiseach talking about how they had acquired, you know, space for, for overspill mortuaries and that these were, these were precautions they were putting in place. And I remember sitting there and being utterly shocked by this one piece of a vast amount of information that was coming out that day. And obviously you will have been privy to that at the time as well. That was... That was particularly shocking for people. No, either, but the temporary facility was built and it was staffed and it was ready, and not one person, I don't think, had to use it. So that, for me, is a result for the country. A bit like the City West Hospital. Don't think it's. It, I'm not sure how whether uh, what how many cases went there. Um, and the country had to do that. It, it, it had to do that if we got overwhelmed because there were huge numbers and projections at one point, wasn't there, Sarah? There was, you know, excess mortality of multiples of what it actually was. And we just don't, don't have the facilities resources to deal with that. Um, and I, obviously then in terms of practice and, meet, you know, we, we are a service that meets people all the time in their home or in a funeral home or whatever setting it is. Uh, we couldn't do that. So everything's by the phone, everything's on email. Uh, we didn't want people coming down to the funeral home and um, potentially carrying the virus and knocking us all out. Uh, so that was, that was a hard thing to get your head around. Um, and then when, when we did go to funerals, and whether they were COVID-related deaths or not, the distancing part of it was um, a whole learning <laughs> had to do on the spot and in many ways I kind of felt we we had to go through the process that other businesses did later on in the year 
And we did all that in March. It was kind of an emergency transition for you guys. It felt like that. Yeah. And even in your business, as you mentioned, like comforting people is part of what you do. It's part of your role. Shaking hands with people, reassuring them. You weren't able to do any of that. All of that had changed for you in an instant. Yeah. Do you know what, though? Families were amazing. They really, you know, they really got it. They didn't like it, but they got it. And they really stood up. My word, certainly at the beginning, to be told you couldn't attend your husband's funeral. Wow. Because you were potentially a carrier or had it. And um, I, I really think, whilst everyone has been rightly praising um, the health service, um, I think families who lost people were amazing in this country. Amazing. And you saw that devastation firsthand. You were literally on the front line as they were either getting to say goodbye or, on the other hand, not, maybe through video, different channels. What was it like to see that and to witness firsthand the grief that people were experiencing? Well, it started, I just felt really weird. Uh, and then, then it sort of set in a little bit that you got this actually really, really sad. Uh, and we'd try and do drive-bys, you know, past, go down the road, and maybe the neighbours would come out, or the wife would come out, you know, with the mask on. Uh, you know, it, 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 was, it was like a movie. Most a lot of people forego what they would have normally had wanted or expected. It might have gone direct to the crematorium or direct to the gravesite. Um, and um, don't forget, a lot of, a lot of clergy um, are over 70. So, they, they, you know, they were, they were really struggling with having, you know, they couldn't go in many cases. They had to be careful. So funerals really became very sh quiet, sanitised, um, low-key, not Irish events, when you think about it. And do you think that changed um, also as a society, as how we say goodbye to people? There's such a, an emphasis in, there in our, in our, in our fibre, in our being of how we say goodbye to people. Yeah. And all of a sudden we had to do the complete opposite to that. I think we will return to normal life and the normal marking the moment of a, of a death. I think we will, but not to the same extent. I think funerals are... In, in a lot of cases going to be inherently smaller events than we might have be used to. I think a good example might be a work colleague who loses somebody. In Ireland in 2019, you might well have taken an hour and a half off to go down to the church just to support them. I see that happening far less, even with, you know, even with vaccines and no more levels. I think funerals will change. I think more people are going to log online and watch them. Uh, they're going to leave a message of condolence on a, on a website. Um, now, I could be wrong, and I think it's very sad, in a sense, that we, um, we're we not there yet. We, you know, I, if, if that was to disappear completely, I'm not making myself too clear, I think that would be a sorry thing. You were then coming and going to work during those first couple of weeks where you're living in your new normal, people hate that term. Um, what was it like for you? Were you just in a kind of a robotic work mode, just yeah. get on with it? Like you probably didn't have time perhaps to think about it? Or no, it didn't. And uh, you know, my commute took about six minutes instead of 40 minutes. Um, we were walking around, I was in the head office in Angel Street quite a lot, I had the mask on, there was just us, a few locals and the police. That was it. It was weird. 
I was obviously worried at the beginning about bringing infection back home. Genuinely, I think we all were. But um, touch wood, that, that, that did not happen. I was going to say, because you and I were talking about that yesterday and you were saying that there were some sacrifices on a personal level that people had to make to try and keep the business going and to yeah. keep being able to serve families in the communities. I mean, I'll give one example um, of a colleague who always worked during the day, um, Monday to Friday, sometimes weekends, but day, daylight. And overnight she switched to working nights and taking our night service phone. I thought that was uh, an incredible commitment just to change, turn your life down, up life upside down like that and she did it and she was very happy to do it um, and so she was taking calls in the middle of the night for yeah. the families in distress then. yes it's reasonable that you know this is your your line of work you deal with death all of the time so of course you're bound to be familiar with it but even for you being a professional person who deals with death all the time was the impact of COVID-19 still quite shocking for someone like you yeah uh, I think um, when you see over that six-week period of April and into May, an almost 50% increase in the number of funerals that were being conducted, uh, that's a shock. Now, we're used to busy periods, and they tend to be the winter months, January, February, and we have a almost like a, um, a built-in resilience to deal with large number of calls at that time. Um, but we're not, we were not quite expecting what we had to do in April taken as a whole. Yes, is it a shock to the system? A system, it bloody well is. COVID took the human connection that families have when they're grieving. It, it took that away. It showed no mercy. We, we were robbed of that grief, that connection, the, the hugging and embracing each other as a family. That was taken from us. Even when Francis passed away, when Betty and Rachel came outside to the car park, like after our husband dying, we, we couldn't hug them. We were just staring at each other. We offered our condolences. But we, we just, you know, after your husband passing away, my brother passed away. Just four people out in the car park just ended up just turning their backs and going home. And how's your mom doing now? How's she coping? I mean, and once it's because of COVID and because we were in the kind of lockdown, at least I was at home. Um, so like she wasn't kind of on her own. Uh, so it was kind of a new kind of experience. But I mean, we're trying to do the best we can and trying to, you know, ring the family. Mum has a big family as well. So uh, lots of her siblings will ring her up and ask her how she is. We've got great neighbours and they're always looking out for us. So. And we were just trying to get on with it and kind of live life in this kind of new normal. Yeah. And finally, how would you like your dad to be remembered? If you know, what's the one thing that stands out that you'd like your dad to be remembered for? Um, I think just the amazing person he was, the amazing father, the community man he was. That he he just uh, gave up so much so much of his time for other people and he just gave myself and my mom a, a great life and um, like he was the one who uh, he worked so hard like my mom kind of she reared me but dad um, like he put the money on the table and uh, he gave me everything that I wanted like we went on holidays every year so that was obviously I was lucky to do that he was so supportive of my education and uh, he was a great man of faith as well so um, you know, that kind of inspires me too. Um, 
and yeah, he's just a, a great man, so I hope that I'm half the person he was. <laughs> I reckon he'd be very proud of you, actually. Thank you. Yeah. That was lovely. Thank yeah, you. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.